Hello and welcome to the February edition of the ESI Environmental Podcast. And without any delay, let's start off with some news. The Environmental Audit Committee has called for a major overhaul of regulatory interest and processes on water quality, with a focus on increased monitoring and enforcement. Data from the Environment Agency has revealed that water companies discharge raw sewage into the UK waterways more than 400,000 times in 2020. Although the committee believes this may be an underestimate, the Environmental Audit Committee warns that a dangerous chemical cocktail is forming in UK waters due to underinvestment and multiple failures from government and the EA to enforce standards and practices. Intensive livestock and poultry farming is putting pressure on particular catchments such as the flow into the River Wye, while plastic particulates, worn away from brakes and tyres, are getting washed into watercourses from busy roads. Additionally, and for the leisure sector this is probably the most telling part, fats, oils and greases are clogging up drainage systems, and meshes and single-use plastics are creating a wet wipe reef in rivers. These materials are forming fatbergs, which is costing the water companies and their customers in the region of £100 million a year. So it is likely that enforcement action is going to be taken to encourage catering facilities that don't adequately deal with their discharges of fat, oil and grease through a grease separator or similar piece of equipment. The EAC is calling for the recently introduced Office for Environmental Protection to focus on water quality and to use its powers to improve both regulatory frameworks and enforcement. There was widespread coverage in the national newspapers of the third and final report on the government's environmental land management schemes published by the Public Accounts Committee. The report brings forward an analysis of the planning and rollout of the government's future farming policy and is critical of the government's handling of the introduction of the programme, claiming that DEFRA is being over-optimistic about the objectives and timelines and has provided insufficient information on the schemes. In response, the Environment Secretary George Eustace said, We disagree with many of the points made by the committee which fail to take into account recent developments. Farm incomes have improved significantly since the UK voted to leave the EU in 2016 and there will never be a better time to improve the way we reward farmers. The response continues. Since the publishing of the Agricultural Transition Plan document in 2020, DEFRA has made significant progress working with farmers to co-design the new system which will incentivize sustainable farming practices alongside profitable food production, rewarding them for delivering public goods such as improving air quality and wildlife habitats. The first of our new schemes is on track for launch in spring and a pilot is already running. We are making good progress against our published plans including designing a new sustainable farming incentive scheme, successfully launching the pilot with 938 farmers and preparing the scheme for early rollout in 2022. In January, they go on, we published more detail of the local nature recovery scheme and the landscape recovery scheme, which includes information on how they will work, when they will be rolled out and the eligibility criteria. Alongside this, DEFRA has published a document setting out the environmental and climate ambitions of the environmental land management scheme and designing new productivity schemes ready for launch in 2022. And next, and slightly outside the environmental remit, there are amendments to the Personal Protective Equipment Regulations from the 6th of April 2022. 
essentially what this means for employers is that the Personal Protective Equipment at Work Regulations 1992 placed a duty on every employer in Britain to ensure that suitable PPE was provided to employees who may be exposed to risk whilst they're working. The PPER 2022 extends this duty to workers and comes into force on the 6th of April 2022. Employers need to carefully consider whether the change to UK law apply to them and their workforce and make the necessary preparations to comply. So what does this mean for workers? If a risk assessment indicates a worker requires PPE to carry out their work activities, the employer must carry out a PPE suitability assessment and provide the PPE free of charge as they do for employees. The Health and Safety Executive have prepared an interim guidance document to help employers identify whether they and their workforce may be impacted by the changes and explains what employers may need to do to prepare for the changes. And next, as we're all experiencing changes to our energy prices, the energy suppliers are asking the government to launch a variant on contracts for difference as a way of spreading the rocketing costs of wholesale gas prices. Emergency discussions ended inconclusively before Christmas between the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and Energy UK, representing the retailers who have survived mass bankruptcies, which drove 26 suppliers out of business in 2021. Officials rejected the supplier's demand for a £20 billion government-backed fund for long-term loans to lighten the load on balance sheets. Discussions are ongoing and the energy sector is hopeful of some form of counter-offer from the Treasury to assist business. Reform of red diesel and other rebated fuels entitlement. The Finance Bill 2021 and subsequent secondary legislation brought in measures introducing legislative changes to restrict the entitlement red diesel and rebated biofuels from the 1st of April 2022. Areas qualifying to continue the use of red diesel and rebated biofuels include equipment used in agriculture, horticulture, fish farming and forestry. This includes allowing vehicles used for agriculture to be used for cutting verges and hedges, snow clearance and gritting roads. Passenger freight and maintenance vehicles designed to run on rail tracks. For heating and electricity generation in non-commercial premises. This includes the heating of homes and buildings such as places of worship, hospitals, town halls, off-grid power generation and non-propulsion uses on permanently moored houseboats. For the maintenance of community amateur sports clubs as well as golf courses, including activities such as ground maintenance and heating and lighting of clubhouses, changing rooms, etc. As a fuel for marine craft refuelling and operating in the UK, including fishing and water freight industries, except for propelling private pleasure craft in Northern Ireland, and for powering the machinery, including caravans of travelling fares and circuses. At Budget 2020, the government announced that it was removing the entitlement to use red diesel from most sectors, except for agricultural, as well as horticulture, forestry and fish farming, rail and non-commercial heating from the 1st of April 2022. The government did consult to ensure that it had not overlooked any exceptional reasons why other sectors 
should be allowed to continue to use red diesel beyond April 2022. The outcome of this consultation is set out in the summary of responses to the consultation that has been published alongside the budget of 2021. And next, a study for environmental sustainability improvements on stud farms. The Thoroughbred Breeders Association has announced a pilot study to investigate the environmental impacts of stud farms driven by the Thoroughbred Breeders Association and the Racing Foundation. The project will be managed by the Environmental Sustainability Workgroup and formed in 2020 following the passing of the Agriculture Bill. The TBA's Environmental Sustainability Working Group seeks to collaborate with industry professionals on grassland management practices to enhance air and water quality, soil health improvement, mitigate flood risks and increase biodiversity, while also reducing carbon footprint on stud farms. The project's results and recommendations will be used by the group to encourage environmental sustainability practices and provide guidance to those managing pasture for equine who wish to access government funding via the Environmental Land Management Scheme. And that rounds off the news. Next we move on to consultations. And Environment Minister Rebecca Powell has announced plans to ensure wildlife can be better protected and enhanced in developments in the Biodiversity Net Gain consultation launched in January. The proposal set out the Biodiversity Net Gain consultation will help communities, planners, developers and local authorities to ensure new developments are nature positive, which means putting nature and biodiversity gain at the heart of all decision making and design. As part of the launch, the government has also announced a new funding pot of over £4 million to help local planning authorities and other local authorities with planning oversight prepare for the biodiversity net gain, which will become mandatory two years after royal assent of the Environment Act. The funding will help local planning authorities expand ecologist resource and upskill ecologist teams, increasing their capacity to work with developers and communities to provide biodiversity gains by helping restore wildlife, plants and landscapes after building work has taken place. The Biodiversity Net Gain Consultation closes on the 5th of April 2022 and is available on the government website. And the next consultation links into a project that we've been working on for the last 12 months. The five regional water resource groups are currently consulting on their draft regional water resource plans to feed into the development of the National Framework for Water Resource. Those of you who have listened to previous podcasts will be very well aware that due to climate change, increasing population and consumption of water, we are facing a deficit. There is insufficient supply of water currently available to match the demand that is projected. So the five regional water resource groups have the unenviable task of trying to identify where it may be possible to identify new sources of water, but with the length of time it is likely to take for large infrastructure projects to be fulfilled, the initial elements of the projects will have to focus on demand management. However, this process of water resource planning for the next 50 odd years is being conducted in a collaborative way. Personally, I have attended two consultation workshops 
currently, one for Water Resource East and one for Water Resource Southeast, two areas of significant water stress where the pressures are really on the water resource groups to identify available supply and to ensure that supply given a range of scenarios but also protecting up to a 1 in 500 year drought event. If you are a member of the Club Managers Association of Europe, the Grounds Management Association, the National Association of Public Golf Courses, the Racecourse Association or the UK Golf Federation We have been discussing the development of the draft regional water resource plans for many months now and at each of the workshops for the consultation of the regional water resource plans we are representing the views of their members but we are also putting forward the case studies that have been developed over the last six to eight months and the case studies have varied but The common thread is that there is an opportunity here to look at surface water runoff during periods of high rainfall and for that water to be attenuated to reduce the risk of localised flooding and retained to be used for irrigation during dry periods in the place of mains public water supply or abstraction. We will liaise with the associations that we're working with on the water use and resilience project within the leisure sector and revert back to them with the feedback that we have from the regional water resource groups. But we've also been invited for additional meetings with the Environment Agency, the water companies and the regional water resource groups to really identify how it might be possible to deliver the sort of benefits that are clear and apparent from the case studies that we've been developing with the leisure sector. Hopefully having the dual benefits of providing enhanced flood resilience, reduction in mains water supply reliance or unsustainable abstraction, and to provide a safe future for the availability of water for turf irrigation for the leisure sector. If anyone's interested in finding out more about the draft water resource plans from any of the five regional water resource groups then please do get in touch with me directly and I will provide you with links to the relevant documentation. And continuing the theme of water use we have our own consultation. At a meeting of the Leisure Sector Water Working Group last November a lot of the discussions on the initial phase of the meeting related to the availability of alternative sources of water with the Environment Agency, the water companies Natural England Rivers Trust and a number of other organisations. The second part of the meeting focused very much more on the use of water and the ability of the turf sector to optimise the use of their available water. Clearly what we were hoping to do from the Leisure Sector Water Working Group was to allocate projects and tasks based on the expertise of those attending. So as we're working with the Environment Agency, the water companies, Cranfield University and a number of others to look at the possible range of different sources of water, I'm very keen for the leisure sector, those involved in turf grass management, to look at turf management with a perspective of minimising the water use, but also to provide help and guidance to a whole range of different turf grass irrigators that we're working with as part of the leisure sector project. 
it's become very clear to us that we have some absolute expertise in water management at golf courses, at football clubs and a number of other sources. But we are also looking to work with local authorities and community clubs that may not have that level of expertise. So I'm really keen to actually find ways that we might be able to share knowledge. But that knowledge share needs to go beyond turf management, soil moisture management and the new technologies that we're bringing in, but also to look at irrigation systems. What does a good irrigation system look like? What features should it have? How should you be able to control the amount of water that you're applying to your land? And how may it be possible to improve irrigation efficiency for every budget. So we need to have zero cost management techniques, but we should then look to try and develop some form of sliding scale, where if you have a small budget, then you might consider whatever that might be, right the way through to a new irrigation system that might cost half a million or three quarters of a million pounds. But we have to look at the whole range of different organizations that are gonna be using water. And the community assets, the community clubs, are one of those areas that may not have the specialist expertise available at some of the top clubs. But across the board, across the leisure sector itself, so I'm really keen to get the conversation going between the football sector, the golf sector, horse racing. Whichever industry you're in, we would like to hear from you. If you've got an idea on a method that may aid someone else to improve their irrigation efficiency, then we would really like to hear. And of course, we're gonna be having the same conversations with the various associations to gain their help and guidance. A lot of them have got very advanced information available on the management of turf during drought conditions. And as part of the Water Use and Resilience Project, the Water Resilience Plan template document that we have been funded to create by the water companies in England and Wales has sections on the information available from Sturf and a number of other sources on turf management. Much of that has been created through Cranfield University. So there's information available via this project as well should you wish to access that. And again, if you do, then please get in touch. And to round off the very heavily biased water elements to this podcast, we've got some information from the Environment Agency on the development of reservoirs. And that's one of the elements that is really important in creating water resilience is having some form of storage on site, whether that's a formal reservoir, a more naturalised reservoir, or even storage tanks. One of the case studies that we've been developing for the Water Use and Resilience Project for the water companies was for a golf club that were considering the installation of a 5,000 cubic metre butyl-lined reservoir, which was budgeted to cost around £200,000. However, as they started to go through the water resilience plan template that was provided by the water companies via this project, they started to look at the possibility of using a more naturalised storage area, which had maintained a a low water level through 2012 and 2018. Its location was convenient, it could form a feature on the golf course, but it was also in relatively close proximity to 
a car park and their roof runoff, which allowed the possibility of them then collecting rainwater from their hard standing, putting it through a rebed system and then filtering it through into a more naturalised storage area. One of the discussion points obviously was to look at the natural habitat and the ecology on site. But the process has now started to create an alternative plan, something that's actually going to provide a larger area of more naturalised water storage with shallow margins. So ecologically and environmentally, very much preferable to a butyl-lined reservoir. And if we refer back to earlier in this podcast, the biodiversity net gain, the ability to demonstrate that this option is a better option than a butyl-lined one, but also we have to identify what is there currently and how that's going to be enhanced by any new development of an existing natural pond. Interestingly, the additional benefits from this approach would lead to a reduced flow into the combined sewer network in an area that already experiences surface water flooding. And whereas the original concept of a butyl-lined standard reservoir would have attracted, wouldn't have attracted any environmental grants, there are now discussions underway regarding the environmental land management scheme, but also via the Fairways Foundation, bearing in mind that this is a golf course, who are considering the possibility of providing funding, or at least partial funding, for the development of naturalised water storage because of the benefits it can provide to the environment, to biodiversity, to the local community, and to the sustainability of the club. In volume terms, the rainwater harvesting facility can provide around three quarters of the requirements for the club's annual irrigation total, reducing their dependence on mains water for their irrigation to zero through a combination of rainwater harvesting and a 20 cube a day borehole abstraction. And I think, in summary, the most important thing that comes from this project is that the choice of water source is not binary. It doesn't have to be public main supply or abstraction. There are a range of alternatives, and even if those alternatives only reduce your consumption of main supply or abstraction, if you can get a a license to abstract or a 20 cube a day borehole, then it's something that has to be considered. We need to look at every opportunity, and even reducing consumption of public supply is of benefit. If that can be combined with the creation of additional habitat or enhancing a habitat which is already there, then again, surely that has to be a positive. And if you can link that into enhancing flood resilience for a local community, what a great story that is for the leisure sector to actually put out there. So if you'd like to find out more about the case studies that we're developing as part of this project that may help you in your future plans for developing water resilience. If you'd like to access the water resilience plan template that we've developed with the water companies, or if you're interested in adopting the water charter that's been developed as a marker of your intent to improve your water resilience, to look at efficiency and to work with the water companies, then please do get in touch. The water charters are endorsed by WaterWise, the industry water efficiency charity. 
the 17 water companies in England and Wales and the five regional water resource groups who are currently drafting the water resource plans for the next 50 years. The information, help and guidance has been funded by the water companies in England and Wales. It is available to any operator of a leisure facility with irrigated turf. So for further information about how the water companies can help you, please get in touch. My name is Tony Hansen. The company is Environmental Solutions International. My email address is thanson at esinternational.co.uk. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to speaking to you again next month.